Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. Today is Tuesday, October 19th, and I'm your consumer goods host, Emily Flippin. Today, I am joined by Motley Fool Senior Analyst, Asif Sharma, and we're going to be talking about another business that's headed to public markets. Yes, we've been doing a lot of S1 shows, but this company is really interesting, and I think a lot of consumers may have heard about it before. It's NerdWallet. Yeah. Uh, Emily, I'm so excited to be nerding out with you today for a few minutes on this one. Yeah, I was really excited when I saw that this company was I had at least filed to go public because I, I'm familiar with it. As a consumer myself, I will imagine that a lot of our listeners, if you engage with Motley Fool's content, like listening to our podcast, subscribing to our services, I'm willing to take a bet that you probably also engage a little bit with NerdWallet. They're uh, in the personal finance space. They're a website really aimed at providing financial education. Um, but really, in all, in all actually, you know, trying to get you to sign up for a credit card card, maybe take out a loan if you need it. But they're really about empowering consumers. Um, I was excited to see this business go public. But as we were preparing our notes for today's show, I noticed that we got different reads, I think, from this business. And that's great because we don't often disagree, Asif. It's so wonderful, Emily, to, to, to be able to think, I disagree with Emily on this one point. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, if if you're too simpatico, it leads to not optimal investment results. So I think this is positive. And actually, I like this business. I mean, circling around to the the business as a whole, just a shortcut where I'm going to land by the end of this half hour. Yeah, I think it's investable. But there are a few things did turn me off. Let's start with the things that you liked. I think where we we interpreted a, a bit differently around the the introduction of this company to the public markets. And yeah, I too have bopped on their site uh, you know, a few times in the past few years, haven't signed up for a product through NerdWallet, but have certainly, in searching for other things, happened upon it and seen their content. It's great. It's very well organized, et cetera. But tell us about the founding of the company um, and what you liked when you were first going through that prospectus. <laughs> So, I actually liked the CEO slash founder. His name is Tim Chen. He founded the company back in 2009, um, really just started as a spreadsheet. I think he was working for his sister who was interested in getting a credit card, but was really confused about all the different options out there. Um, so, he set up this spreadsheet essentially to kind of track and understand the benefits of different cards to help empower her to make the decision that was best for her finances. And I enjoyed not only that backstory, but actually reading through the shareholder letter. Um, there was a big letter at the beginning of the prospectus written by Chin. And the focus is really on providing, um, I won't say investors, I guess, consumers with simplicity and clarity. And um, my personal motley value here at The Fool is transparency. And I think that so much of the financial services industry is um, committed to just convincing the average person that stuff is too hard or too complicated to do themselves, when in reality, people should feel empowered to be able to make those choices, right? A little bit of education goes a long way. And I felt some of those tones coming out in the shareholder letter, which I, I made me kind of happy to read through it. I think Chen probably agrees with my, that same level of mentality. Yeah, I, I think you're right, Emily. And overall, this is a, a site that's doing a lot of good out in the world because there is so much to look at. And you don't know who has a, just an extremely vested interest in what they're selling you. So I can totally see that 
But I don't know about this. You know, his letter really rubbed me the wrong way. I got Steve L's vibes reading through it. <laughs> so for those of you who uh, don't know who Steve L's is, he's the founder of Chipotle. Of course, he is no longer running the company. Um, but he had something that a theme he would return to so much during the early years of Chipotle, which is our focus on sustainability and doing good in the world makes us the good guys. And all these other guys like McDonald's and quick service operators, they're the bad guys. They're not trying to be sustainable. They're bad for the environment. He had a sort of uh, just a derogatory attitude towards the others. Now, Chen doesn't come across this way. Let me get that clear. But he did say something that rankled me in, in that same letter. Um, he says, sales commissions affect trustworthiness and complexity makes it time consuming for anyone to become knowledgeable across all areas of personal finance, especially with the explosion of choice we're witnessing in financial services. And as you point out, Emily, he encompasses this uh, statement on either side with stories about his family and friends and how he constantly helped everyone cut through the weeds of personal finance and options and helped steer them away from vested interest in the investment world. But, you know, the company generates referral fees from the manner in which it reduces complexity. I'm going to read to you from the top of their homepage. Many or all of the products featured here are from our partners who compensate us. This may influence which products we write about and where and how the product appears on the page. However, this does not influence our evaluations. Our opinions are our own. So, I totally don't have an issue with the way the company makes money. We've got a similar business here at The Motley Fool called The Ascent. But at the end of the day, let's not pretend that the advice is totally disinterested. If one of umpteen credit card providers you've ranked objectively pays you for prime space on your review page, that can affect the user's decision. So, ultimately, to me, it's only slightly removed from a sales commission. The recommender has a financial incentive to push one product more pointedly than another. And anybody in the advertiser, advertising business who's been around is, can tell you how important product placement is, placement on a web page. So, if Chen hadn't tried to stake out this holier-than-thou ground, Versus commission products, I would have had such a problem with the statements. It sort of affected my ability to trust management because it came across as so disingenuous to me. I, I get that. It, it There is a little bit of a holier-than-thou attitude by essentially coming in and saying we're not commission-based, when in practice, the service is somewhat commission-based. You can think about it that way. Um, to your point, advertisers pay to be on their platform, and while they don't edit or adjust the review, so if someone thinks a product is, is poor, but it's paid to be at the top, I mean, the, the opinion expressed will be poor, right? But it does impact what you as consumer sees. I will say it's an interesting business model. They are paid though as a portion of those clicks that go through that ultimately generate revenue for that advertiser. So if it's a credit card, it's getting someone to apply for that credit card. If it's a loan, it's getting someone to apply for that loan. Same thing's true for say insurance products. So I think the one thing I'll add is that there is some value in actually presenting useful information to the person who is reading the site, right? Because they need them to go through and actually make that application, make that that loan application if that comes to, to push. And that's how they get paid. So they want to present the best products in front of people, that, which is, I don't know, maybe slightly better <laughs> than a pure commission-based structure. No, I'll agree with that. I mean, just simply presenting a consumer with options is a way of educating the consumer on what he or she can ultimately run with. So I do think, you know, overall, 
I, I think the business model, as I said, does good in the world, but I, I got a just a different vibe <laughs> from that letter than you did. But but let's move on, uh, shall we? Um, Emily Chen is only 39 years old. He's been leading the company since he was 27. I mean, that's so impressive. He retains voting control, but he doesn't own any common shares or won't after the IPO. So, uh, you know, a founder who's still very vested and has control over decision making, but might not have that financial stake in the ground. Let's talk about the mission. You and I both like this. So, we started to agree very quickly after a rare disagreement. We both like this mission. What What is the mission here? Yeah, their mission is to provide clarity for all of life's financial decisions. And I like that because I think it's specific enough to what the business does that you get a good idea about what the future holds for them, while it's still broad enough to apply to a lot of different opportunities. So it's not to best con- match consumers with their best credit card. That's a very limiting mission statement. But it's also not to make the world better, right? Because that, that's really challenging, right? It can apply to anything. So very clear, provide clarity for financial decisions. I liked that, you know, A to B, I feel like it sums up the business well. I think financial life decisions or life's financial decisions are something that brings up emotion and uncertainty for so many of us when you're thinking about big picture decisions, even getting a new credit card for for many of us. You're, you're getting a credit card with a certain limit, you're going to use it for X, but that's going to impact your uh, personal finance on, you know, into mortgages and bigger decisions, products tied to that. So, I like the sense of relief um, that we're a friend sort of pointing you in the right direction. I thought it was very strong. So, this business, um, we already mentioned that they're basically a financial services publication um, they make money by charging advertising referral fees. Users like their site because, as, as you wrote in our notes, Emily, they can access unbiased, simple, and trusted information on finance questions like which credit card should I get? Um, can you tell us about the partners on their site, how they uh, benefit from the way this funnel is structured? Yes. Yeah, so, NerdWallet, as many investors who are familiar with the business may already be aware, have a really strong top of funnel approach. So, they had in the most recent six months, over 21 unique users access their content every month. So, lots of people coming in the top of funnel. And even though only a handful or a select number of these people will ultimately end up making a purchasing decisions based off their site, the people that are coming to NerdWallet are ready to make those decisions. You don't go to NerdWallet to just casually read through what loans are are available to you unless you are actively looking for a loan. So the type of, of people coming through this really wide top funnel are ready to start making those purchases, which means that it's really valuable real estate for their advertisers or their partners to get out in front of those consumers' faces. And because it has such a strong brand reputation, um, they have a really a lot of unpaid search. So over 70% of their traffic comes from unpaid organic searches. People say making a Google search and then clicking on a NerdWallet article. So some really impressive SEO here that really makes it valuable to partners and I'd argue also consumers, although the unbiased nature of it is obviously up for debate. Sure, that's great uh, organic search traffic over 70%. Um, 21 million unique users, but they also have an option to sign up and register with the site. And that helps them uh, actually get a better beat on you. You're, you are a more, I think, um, driven potential customer and you'll have a higher lifetime value. They say that those who register with the site, they're more easily monetized because they're more engaged 
and the lifetime value of these registered users is five times greater than non-registered users. They also have more than twice the number of transactions and sessions as well. So if you think about those uh, unique users who are not registered versus the ones who registered, there's a big delta between the usage when someone goes ahead and, and submits their information. And I think that's also impressive. Yeah, it was this kind of registered user approach that I thought was interesting about NerdWallet. Um, when I think about the fact that they're reaching for what would be a $5 billion valuation, we'll talk about their finances, but that's a big company. It's a big mission, bigger than just, you know, here's some referral fees. And I like the fact that they have this offering for registered users, which provides personal finance, I guess, management in a sense. If you're familiar with Intuit's Mint, um, similar aspect there. So they have credit tracking, um, net worth tracking, budgeting software. So you come in, maybe you get pulled in through a free article to NerdWallet. You like what you see. Maybe you apply for something like a credit card or a loan, but then you also register for their site. And as part of registering that, you get all these tools to help you better manage your finances. Uh, they're not monetizing that. I don't really quite know how they would monetize that, but maybe that's good for at least base levels of engagement. Um, around 43% of their total unique users are registered users. So about 9 million of the 21 million users. In this day and age coming to market, you almost need to show some statistics that point to future recurring revenue, something that looks like a software as a service model, even if it's not. So that's important for them. But it also points to how different this is from so many business models that we look at. The revenue from year to year is unpredictable. Um, they've recently acquired uh, a company called Fundera, which provides similar offerings. So it's a uh, like a smaller site, small business loan information is what they specialize in. And they provide that to small and medium-sized businesses. But Emily, this is a company that very much ebbs and flows with economic cycles. You had pointed out to me that you see this as similar to or, or driven by underlying demand in the banking industry. So could you explain to us a little bit of what you saw in reading through this S1, how that's so similar? Yeah, I would say that similar economic events that impact demand for banking are probably likely to impact nerd wallets. So if you look over the course of 2020, their credit card revenue actually declined 30% because there were low, lower approval rates due to just general economic uncertainty, right? Their advertisers were less willing to, to give people loans because they were uncertain about the economic future. Uh, meanwhile, over the same time period, loan revenue increased 48% because interest rates have been so, so low and there's really high demand for things like home refinancing. Um, so when you think about the type of, I guess, economic structures that will impact a bank, you can think about it impacting nerd wallet. And as we thought about risks for this business, I have to say, I had a hard time pulling out just classic red flags here. I think the biggest risk for me is the fact that so much of what they wrote about in their S1 was aspects that drive their business that are completely out of their control. Um, virtually all of the demand for their revenue they can't do much to stimulate. The best they can do is still be the premium site with a best top of funnel, but when tides move against them, which they will as you know, the economy ebbs and flows, there's very little they can do to change that reality. True. If you are the type of investor who really scrutinizes every quarter and gets emotional over one quarter relative to others, this might not be the company for you. I was surprised at how lumpy the business is, but you know, it sort of makes sense if this is the type of company where 
um, let's say you could employ a 10-year holding period because any economic cycle is going to have one or two big exogenous shocks in, in a given 10-year time period. We know that, right? There was a great recession. Then we had COVID-19 with increasing frequency, I think also because of climate change. We'll see this. So, overall, NerdWallet can prosper. It's just not going to be this linear, smooth path to, to revenue and, and stock price appreciation. I think that this is a bet on the, the focus on consumption in the U.S. economy because the business model is concentrated in the U.S. I see that growing at a pretty steady clip over the next several years, and there's no reason that they can't continue to grow in this lumpy, variable fashion if they don't get disrupted themselves by newer challengers. It's not a high, high barrier business. That's certainly true. Let's think about their finances here. I mentioned earlier that they're seeking a $5 billion valuation. Um, they have 2020 revenue of just over, or just under $250 million. They're on a run rate right now for 2021 of around $360 million. So we're talking about a forward, just price to sales of somewhere around 13 to 15 times, which is pretty lofty for this business. It becomes even a little bit more lofty when you look at their bottom line. While they were profitable in the past, 2019 and 2020 saw around a 10% and a 2% net profit margin, uh, they were actually unprofitable for the first six months of 2021, largely because they've been ramping up their marketing expenses so aggressively. Something to keep your eye on, I, I don't know if they're trying to fund growth here, if they're reaching out to try to get that top line to grow faster. To be honest, I'm not quite sure where they'd spend that money to make that a reality. Yeah, this is a business that needs that marketing as a lever. They had, a, you know, a very interesting turn towards the negative in operating cash flow. That turned negative, uh, or reading to the tune of eighteen million bucks. And tied to that, Emily, you point out they've got a very substantial receivable backlog. So receivables are up. Part of that is having uh, an effect on the cash flow. They have a twenty-five percent concentration in their end-of-period receivables for this S one two unnamed customers. And historically, they've been concentrated 20 to 30% among two or three names at each period end. I think what's important here for us to realize, again, for those of us who've been trained on software as a service models, this is not a company that has uh, you or me as the end customer. Its customers are its referral partners. And what this means is they really step into the world of um, procurement with these big companies, just as a manufacturing company would, which means that you're waiting 60 days to get paid. You're dealing with the uh, partner's procurement system, and you're going to be financing your business on those receivables. It's not that you're getting paid upfront, like in a software as a service model, and then that money's in the bank. You just realize the revenue over the next 12 months. It's a slow cash moving model. And we noted, looking at this company, that they have an asset baseline. So basically, they're um, using their receivables as a working capital loan lending base. Just to keep in mind, again, we talk about variability. It's not just in the sales, it's also in their ability to use cash flow. So it makes even funding self-growth a bit harder. The way they compensate from that is what you mentioned. They turn up that marketing lever that, in any given period, is going to be a huge expense uh, in the income statement. 
And the good news there is that because their gross margins have been so impressive and so steady at around 92% over the past few years, that if and when stuff shifts, right, um, whether it be a macro sense, whether it be just less sticky with their advertisers, they can scale back that marketing spend and pretty easily return to some level of profitability. Um, So even considering those receivables, even considering the huge marketing spend that they've built up during 2021, um, if they see opportunity, they want to pull those people in. And when the opportunity ceases, to exist, they can probably cut that spend. The one thing I was really missing here, and I I didn't see it, it's possible that I I missed it, although I did do my best to read through as much of this as possible. I didn't see any breakdown for things like lifetime value or customer acquisition cost for the actual people visiting their site. I had very little visibility into what the actual economics for their core customers were. I was hoping to get that, even if it was just for, say, registered users, I was really hoping to try to get some insight into the value of that customer they're bringing in because it does help classify that marketing spend so you can kind of see it more clearly in your head. True. And I have a guess that uh, customers come to the site, they go away. If we were to look at a classic concept like churn, we'd see a lot of churn there. And as we've been talking about, as as the economy starts to uh, surge and people have more to spend, that's when they tend to make those life decisions. So it's a cyclical business in some ways. But when the going is good, it's good. Uh, just the last thing on the financials, uh, Emily, that you liked. I, I like this very much. They've got a very nice uh, top line in terms of the breakdown of revenue. It's it's sort of evenly split between three big buckets. Could you walk us through those? Yes, I like this too. Pretty well diversified. The first big bucket is credit cards. It makes up around 30% of their revenue. That's a slow, steady grower for them, um, up 10% this year, thanks to the pandemic recovery largely. Uh, then you have loans, around 36% of revenue, as we mentioned earlier. And then what they call others. That's the remaining 35% of revenue. Um, and that includes things like their insurance business, but also that small to medium business revenue from Fundera, as well as things like investing or Banking. So we've got just a few minutes left. Let's move on to, to risks. You've mentioned one already, Emily. Tell me another big picture risk, and I'll throw in one as well. Yes. Um, so we mentioned this earlier, but virtually all of their revenue comes from the US. They made one acquisition in the UK, uh, created what they call Nerd Wallet UK, but it doesn't contribute materially to their earnings. But the biggest risk, as I mentioned earlier, I really do think is just how. Um, I I guess out of control they feel about their financial performance, even looking at their credit card, the loans, and the other segments. When management called out the performance of those year-over-year, it was all outside factors, right? So credit cards did better because of the pandemic recovery. Um, There was a huge increase in mortgage loans, up 94%, again, because of low interest rates. Um, There was a decrease in investing revenue because lower consumer demand, lower excitement in 2021 for investing. It was all just kind of like, okay, well, you're telling me stuff that is happening happen to you that results in financial performance, but what are you doing to make financial performance a reality? I guess the business felt more reactive than proactive to me. So that just stands out to me as probably the biggest risk. To me, I think that there's a a long-term risk in how its financial partners will be studying the return on their investment. Um, I mentioned this actually a few weeks ago in terms of another industry, which is the travel industry, in that Marriott, this huge uh, hotel uh, hospitality name gradually started marketing to its customers itself. It acquired the Starwood Group with that end in mind because the Starwood Group had such an, an amazing loyalty program. 
they turned that program into the Marriott Bonvoy program to sort of bypass their partners, which were these online travel agencies, which take a cut, a commission. Um, and they're slowly shifting more business to a direct model. So I'm wondering if in the future and, and over time, big financial partners might become more savvy with savvy with the types of digital content marketing that sites like NerdWallet and our own The Ascent are so good at, and dis- decide, hey, look, you know, it's a lot of investment up front. We have to invest in new people and systems, but that lifetime value is worth it to us to have our customer come directly to us and stay with us because once we've got them, we can market directly to them. So I see that as sort of a secondary risk, but overall, I did like the brand power that NerdWallet has, I think it can at least alleviate most of the risks we've talked about today by capitalizing on that. And I wonder if uh, geographic expansion at some point wouldn't be uh, you know, in the offing for this company. I didn't see a lot of discussion on that in the S1. I'll be really interested in particular to see what type of valuation this company goes public at. Like we mentioned a couple times before, they are looking for $5 million. And um, you know, as much as I want to say, I think that's ridiculous, especially because the market tides have turned a little bit over the past few months, uh, maybe a little bit less forgiving to unprofitable growth companies that are depending on things like advertising revenue. However, I will say it's not unheard of, right? I don't think it's a completely ridiculous valuation for in comparison to some of the numbers that we've seen. So I'm just so interested to see how the market reacts to this. Personally, I, I'm sitting on the sidelines for this business for at least a very long time into the future. I will probably continue to use their products as a consumer amongst a host of others. But do I, am I interested in investing? Yeah, probably not. Yeah, same here. I'm, I'm going to make a prediction. And I think on predictions, I'm uh, one out of like 10 this year. I'm so bad at predicting the future, but I'm going to say, look, four, three to four billion. The reason is we've seen so many companies get what they wanted from the markets, right? This is a company that doesn't have some kind of strong annualized recurring revenue to point to. So investors can say, yeah, I don't care. I'll pay another you know, few percentage points of multiple because look at this locked in business. It's so great. We've seen that time and time again. This is a bit different. This model is different and investors should be a little more wary and not confuse it. It looks like a SaaS model, but it really isn't. It's got a few customers that it works with and neither side knows exactly how many ultimate consumers will come into the funnel in any given quarter. So for that reason, you know, I'm interested as a long, long, long-term hold, a 10-year hold, a 15-year hold, but I'm not uh, jumping to, to buy shares just yet. Well, Asit, thank you so much, as always, for joining and, and talking about NerdWallet here. It's Same fun nerding here. out. Yeah, it was fun nerding out with you as well, Emily. <laughs> Listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or just want to reach out to say hey, shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks or Zerk behind the screen today. For Asit Sharma, I'm Emily Flippin. Thanks for listening and Fool on! Fool on!